0: What can we learn about dismantling racism in our time? Well, we can learn a lot from black activists who tell us about their experience, but there's also something to be learned from white activists, those who work against racism in our society. Tim Wise is just such a one, and he'll be with us on Good God. Stay tuned. Welcome to Good God, Conversations That Matter about faith and public life. This is a special edition uh, from the New Baptist Covenant. We're here in Atlanta in uh, October of 2018, and we're delighted to welcome Tim Wise. Tim, we're glad to have you with us. Tim has just been regaling us with information that is explosive to many of us uh, in terms of of his perspective Mm -hmm. about uh, the problems of racism and the, the challenges that we have going forward. Tim is uh, a, an activist, an anti-racism activist and a writer. He's written books uh, like uh, White Like Me and uh, Under the Affluence mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Dear White People and things like that. Tim, I, I want to ask you a few things that your, your initial um, speech brought to bear, and there seem to be some ironies in mm-hmm. all of this. Mm-hmm. So to begin with, at a very simple level, race doesn't really exist. Right. Um, It's a social construct. We have one race. It's the human race, right? Yeah. But it's really quick for us then to move from that, especially when we're white people, right, to therefore the solution is Mm. colorblindness. Right. So what we want is a society in which color no longer matters, Mm. and yet that strategy always tends to work out better for us than for people of color. Sure. So talk to us a little bit about how uh, to, to recognize that while race itself doesn't exist per se except in our own minds, the path toward eradicating yeah. it is actually more about race, race consciousness right. than race unconsciousness. Right.
1: Well, first, uh, a couple things. Um, I should point out, my book is Dear White America. Dear White People's a really good TV show and a really good movie. Sorry I am about not that. responsible okay. for that. That's All Justin right. Simeon, right. not good. me. Um, I, you know, as a black man created that, white folks take a lot of credit for stuff black folks <laughs> did. I will, not, I will not jack his TV show or Very his movie. Very good, um, right. but, uh, uh So there's that. Um, the piece about the social construct, the way I, the way that I try to think about it, because for many years I've had people who've said that we should just let people know that race is not biologically real and therefore racism is silly and therefore that will solve the problem. But the problem with that, I mean, as true as it is on a biological and genetic level, um, it's... You know, going back to my thing that I said during my talk about witches and the way that, you know, European history and the colonial period, we spent a lot of time fighting each other and chasing witches before we even turned our sights on people of color or around the same time. Um, Witches weren't real either in any real functional biological sense, but you know what, an awful lot of women and some men were persecuted on the assumption that they were engaged in witchcraft. So even if witches weren't a thing, Mm anti-witchism, right, Mm -hmm. was definitely real. And so the same is true here. Race may not be real, but racism can be real if I give this concept the power of of resource differentials. If I allow some on the basis of this phony thing to accumulate more, the fact that it's phony doesn't make the assets phony. It doesn't make the deficit phony right? Uh, that others experience. So we can't rest on the fact that it's not real. That's an interesting fact that biologists and geneticists can by and large tell us. but but it doesn't really deal with the social piece. Now, as far as the color blindness versus color consciousness piece, you know, Julian Bond, much wiser man than I, who passed a few years ago, um, said it best. He said, you know, to be blind to color is to be blind to the consequences of color, and especially the consequences of being the wrong color in America. Meaning historically, if we are blind to the thing that is creating disadvantage for some and advantage to others, then by definition you can't solve that thing. The analogy that I would use, and again this is because it's just so easy to get our head around, if I were to say, as an able-bodied person, temporarily, because you know I just turned 50, so you know, things could happen any yeah. minute. Um, as a temporarily able-bodied person, if I were to say, you know, the solution to ableism, which is the term for discrimination against the disabled, right? Uh, is just ability blindness, disability blind. Let's just be disability blind. Let's just not pay attention to people's disability. Well, what happens if I don't pay attention to your disability, let's say for instance that you're in a wheelchair, then what do I not do? Well, I don't build ramps and I don't make the doors wide enough for you to get through because I'm not paying attention because it'd be wrong To pay attention to your disability, let's not call attention to it. Let's ignore it. That's absurd. Or if I were to say, think about some invisible disabilities that people have, right? So um, dyslexia, for instance, is a a quote-unquote disability. It's not something you'd know about someone unless they told you or unless you were maybe their teacher. So if I'm being ignorant to that, if I'm not conscious of that disability or that differential ability, perhaps is a better way to say it, then I'm not going to do what? I'm not going to get you a, a reading specialist or someone who knows how to take folks who are dyslexic and get them up to speed in terms of what they need to know to read. I mean, you know, we would never do it in that regard. Mm -hmm. Uh, We think about the deaf community and I want to differentiate the deaf community from the disabled community uh, writ large because deaf folks are very clear that they have a culture that they believe not to be disabled and so I don't want to lump them in. Uh, The deaf community would say, how are you going to be ignorant of or not pay attention to our difference? That means you're not going to get sign language interpreters in our classrooms or at the events that we uh, are going to in college, big lectures, you know, um, which wouldn't do it there. But with race, we act like that's the answer. And I Mm -hmm. think you, you hit on it when you said that it works out better for the dominant group. Because when the dominant, the dominant group doesn't have to think about it. Right. These things that I mentioned in my talk, the, the, the historic inequities accumulated precisely because we weren't giving enough thought to the right. injustice of that. It's pretty right. absurd to think that by continuing to not think about it, all that's gonna vanish. So you, you also said in your talk, you were talking about
0: how um, David Duke and Richard Spencer mm-hmm. and the, uh, the, the people who marched in, in Charlottesville and, and whatnot, mm-hmm. they're really not the problem. They didn't create the right. structure of, uh, of inequity and, and racial injustice mm-hmm. in our country, that we are all com- complicit in that. So I, I want to talk about this tricky thing about groupism, you might say, yeah. all yeah. right? Yeah. So in one sense, we're saying, uh, yes, they didn't do that. And yet all of us as white people are somehow implicated yeah. in, in this system.. Right. Uh, how is that different from when white people look at uh, <clears throat> black people who are rioting or who are, you know, doing things yeah. that, are, uh, that we consider to be unlawful yeah. or some such? And then we say, you know, that's black people for you.
1: Right. I mean, right, right.
0: That, there they go again. Right. Right. And and if if black people would just yeah well so th- it it seems like a double standard in terms right. of uh, when we accept ourselves and when we blame. People right. generally. How do you? How
1: I think you the difference is one is a sociological assessment, and one uh-huh. is a characterological assessment. All right. Right. So when I say that all white folks are implicated in a system of inequality, that has that's not a statement about white folks' character. Mm-hmm. It's not a statement about whether you're good or a bad person. In fact, I will stipulate up front that I think most people, white, black, or otherwise, are good people uh, who at least want to do good. I don't good, think good, I, good
0: people on both sides. I, I, that, I think they're good. good. I think <laughs> most people are good.
1: I <laughs> yeah. think most people are decent human beings yeah. who right. want to get it right. Uh, who don't wake up every day wanting to oppress. Those boys in Charlottesville, I do not count among them. I do actually think that they wake up every day seeking mostly to oppress and to denigrate. But the vast majority of white people are not like that. The vast majority of guys, I don't think, are like that. Um, But it's a sociological statement that to be white in a system of white supremacy means that certain advantages will be conferred upon you with or without your consent. So all of the examples that I gave, the wealth disparities, the unemployment disparities, criminal justice disparities, if some people are down, because of discrimination or oppression. By definition, others must be up. That's not an issue of philosophy or politics. That's basic grammar. There can be no down without an up. This is just essential vocabulary. So, so if some are down, others are elevated above them, that means we're all implicated, regardless of character. When white folks say about black folks, for instance, um, so if you look at differential crime rates, and I want to be real specific, keeping in mind for a minute, Crime is defined by the people who have the power to define what is criminal. So a lot of negative and destructive behaviors that rich people, regardless of race, but disproportionately who are white in this country engage in, Are just as destructive as what poor people do but they're not criminalized you get to sue them if you can find a lawyer and if you have the time and money it's like wage theft right if the employer steals two thousand dollars from you by not paying you your overtime by not paying you the prep work when you help set up the restaurant by stealing your tips you can't call the cops on your boss you can sue your boss if you can find an attorney the FBI estimates that wage theft is three times more money lost to that every year than all the street robberies combined but if I steal $200 out of the till in that restaurant where I work. You will call the cops. I will go to jail. So clearly, criminality is defined by those who have the power to define it, and they usually exempt themselves and people like them from the criminal code. Having said that, when we look at official crime rates, it's true that the the official crime rate, let's say, among black folks is higher. Of course, we know, because studies in 32 countries have borne it out, that the reason for that is the correlation between socioeconomic status and criminal offending. But when white folks say about black people because of the higher crime rates, well, that's just black people, that's not a sociological assessment they're making. They're actually making a judgment about the character, the choices, the value system, the culture, maybe even the genetics of those people. And when you push hard enough, they'll admit that. They're not saying, like if I were to say, well, because of socioeconomic factors, black folks are more likely per capita to commit crime. That's not a racist comment. That's a sociological comment. But when they say it, that's not what they're saying, right? Right. They they are saying these people are essentially bad people and that's why they do this. So I think that's the difference. One is a generalization about a group. The other is a generalization about a sociological reality, which one is free to disagree with and then we can discuss it, but it's it's not an attack on white people, it's an attack on whiteness and white supremacy. And there have always been white folks who fought white supremacy. And sadly, there have been people of color who have collaborated with it. So it isn't about that.
0: So there are a lot of us in this room who are in predominantly white churches. And Mm we uh, do want to address matters like these from our pulpits and in our Sunday school classes and in our communities. Uh, But when we do, uh, there is a resistance that's uh, uh, not always uh, malignant. I think mm-hmm. people say uh, that they uh, they feel attitudinally that you know that, that they're not racist mm-hmm. per se. Uh, but when we when we start to talk to them about uh, how they are part of a power dynamic, a, a mm-hmm. system that they benefit by, a lot of folks sitting in our pews uh, are not meaning to be dishonest, but they they themselves feel fairly powerless, right. and I, I'm not saying that they feel like victims so much, but mm-hmm. they don't mm-hmm. see how they participate mm-hmm. in in these systems that benefit them. Right. So what would you say to the 68-year-old grandmother who mm-hmm. uh, just loves her kid her, mm-hmm. and her grandkids and doesn't get
1: where she is part of the problem? Well. I think first it is important to to acknowledge that people do feel powerless and I think part of the genius of the system and the evil genius of the society in which we live in many ways is that it's so good at tricking us into believing that we don't have power mm-hmm. that we withdraw from the world or we withdraw from trying to change it. And this, we
0: can withdraw because yes, we and have we, can. The, we have a, a benefit. Yes, we And that's the best proof of
1: power. That's the best That's proof. the best proof exactly. of power is yeah. the fact that I actually can take yes. a take a nap on this right. and historically have. So I always find it, you know, as a Southerner, you know, I, I, who, whose family did include both those who owned slaves and those who were abolitionists, I always find and those who were neither and just sat on the sidelines. I always find it fascinating when folks like those in my family some of them would say well but you know but I didn't own slaves or we didn't own well yes but if your family was here then the question is what did they do? And they did, may not have been the ones who were actively perpetrating the evil, but they also weren't actively resisting it, which is to say they were like most folks, same during segregation. Uh, most white folks during segregation were much more like my grandmother. and They were not rich people. to my mom's parents. They were not wealthy. Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, my grandmother was not a bigot. Uh, she was not one of the people who would have screamed at black children as they integrated a previously white school. But what she would do was sit at home and complain in the presence of my mother that she just... I can't go downtown today and shop on the on the weekend at the department stores because they're doing those sit-ins. <laughs> this is in February of 1960, after right. Greensboro, when the sit-ins hit Nashville, and that was her that was her big beef. It was just like, ah, uh, it's such inconvenience. an inconvenience, right? Yes. And so, right. so she wasn't powerful in the sense that we think of. Uh, But she was collaborating with the system by virtue of her silence. There's a power in silence. There's a power in in inaction. And of course, there's also the power that she had, along with my grandfather, to get house after house after house in neighborhoods where only they could live. And these were modest homes. These were like modest ranch homes in the 50s and 60s. My grandfather was civil service, corps of engineers, and prior to that, the military. You don't get rich in either of those gigs. But those were good, solid, middle-class jobs that were largely off-limits at that level to people of color. So there's power in that. Um, So So number one is to acknowledge that there are degrees of power, and just because one is not running the company or running the country doesn't mean that there isn't a certain degree of power. Secondly, it's to recognize that that even when one feels incredibly powerless, there is always something that we can do. And, and I think the danger is, in a, you know, if you think about the people that were so active in the, in the abolitionist struggle, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the, the labor movement, I mean, the labor movement's a great example. These are working class and poor people, clearly powerless, quote unquote, vis-a-vis the boss, but what if they had decided like, well, you know, I, nothing I can do. So I'm just gonna take the 50 hours, 60 hours a week job and the low pay and the awful conditions. No, they decided in spite of their individual powerlessness that collectively they could exercise power. So if you feel powerless, that's all the better reason to get with other people and try to figure out what are do we doing.
0: Okay, do, right? so there's a kind of organizing power that, yeah. that we can, uh, can exercise in order to effect change. I yeah. wanna pick it up after the break here and yeah. pursue that a little more because I think uh, all of us are looking for solutions. Yeah. So, Uh, Let's take a break, and we'll come right back. The New Baptist Covenant was convened by President Jimmy Carter to advance racial justice in and through the Baptist Church. In Dallas, Friendship West and Wilshire Baptist Church took up this calling and worked together to combat predatory lending. Across the nation, NBC Covenant partners bear prophetic witnesses for the cause of racial justice. Join the mission. Welcome back here with Tim Wise and Tim. Uh, we were talking about how white people do have the power collectively to organize themselves to do something about this, and I think this is one of the things that it seems to me is really important at this point. Is uh, you know, black people didn't create this problem. Right. We did. Yeah. We broke it. We need to be willing to fix it and. Part of that is taking responsibility for the fact that we are, are part of this. And uh, you know there, there's all sorts of ways we tend to deflect mm-hmm. uh, our responsibility about it. Uh, and, and yet, I, I think, ultimately, we can't rely upon electing a black president to yeah. solve this problem, yeah. right? Yeah, clearly. Uh, because once we did, then we claimed that he didn't solve this, and we were more divided than ever and right. that didn't work, so right. let's go back to the way things were. Yeah. So, so I think one of the questions is, if we acknowledge our power, yeah. and we begin to say, uh, we may not be able to change everything right now, but how can the church uh, begin to make progress? How can <clears throat> white Christians of goodwill begin to make certain decisions that will impact generations, since uh, these things don't have immediate effect always, but what would be some of those things?
1: Well, there are a couple of things, and they actually are very much about exegetical process, both institutionally and individually. At the institutional level, I think the church, uh, and I say this as a nice Jewish boy that has absolutely no authority (laughs) to tell your church what to do, other than the fact that you follow one of mine, so there you go. Um, (laughs) But, but, um, but but uh what i would say institutionally for the church and i said that you know i I, first time i ever said this in front of white church folk was uh, i went down to abilene texas which is you know very conservative actually was voted the second most conservative town in america i don't know what first is but it must be really very conservative because abilene very and i went to abilene uh, abilene christian which is a church of christ school and i do not mean united church of christ when i say that (laughs) um and uh, you know, it's David Lipscomb and Pepperdine before they were apostate and basically got kicked out of the family, I suppose. Um, and so I'm at Abilene Christian, and, I, and they asked me that question. And I said, well, y'all might want to start by having a really soul searching discussion about the symbolism of your church and the church more broadly, and the, the, the transmogrification of a first century Palestinian Jew who by definition would have had brown skin, who would have by definition been at least as dark as Yasser Arafat or Osama bin Laden, um, if not darker, and ask why that imagery, though it did exist in the early church and still does in certain iconography of the Catholic church, why that is so lacking in the Western tradition. Tell me what that's about and tell me what would be different if we were anthropologically honest. And I thought they were gonna run me out, but they'd already written the check, so. Uh, And it was fascinating to me as I watched them go, you know what, we need to start there. Because you can't deal with, I think, the modern reality of white supremacy and not understand the role that faith has played and the twisting of faith, the twisting of scripture and the imagery. And Um, let me
0: just pick up on that briefly. And you know, the Church of Christ famously and Baptists are part of that broad family, you might say have a tendency to favor New Testament yeah. over Hebrew scriptures, Christian scriptures, and to divorce those two traditions. Yeah. And, and, and I think there's a lot to be said about the fact that when you do that, when you, when you lose the rootedness mm-hmm. in, of the Christian faith in the Jewish tradition, mm-hmm. you replace it with an ideology and that ideology right. is whiteness yeah. uh, by and large. Yeah. Uh, and, and so we become the true Israel. Yeah. Uh, as opposed because we've lost connection to Israel. Right. And so uh, a lot of this, a lot of racism, I think, is rooted in this kind of anti-Jewish sentiment. Mm-hmm that we're not, we don't realize just how connected uh, all of these things right. are. Well, an
1: anti-Jewish sentiment that, that thinks it can paper over its anti-Jewishness by proclaiming love for a nation state of Israel yes. rather than the people Absolutely of Israel, right. which I'm not impressed by personally. Well, like you. the people that told me I was going to hell when I was in elementary school all sent money to plant trees in Israel right. and it didn't really right. <laughs> help me. Um, you know, and, okay. and to displace Palestinians, which really didn't help me. Right. Um, but but the thing about, yes, yeah, so I, I agree with all of that and I think number one is interrogating the iconography. Number two is doing what, you know, I'm sure many of you in the room have read Divided by Faith by Emerson and Smith. And, and what those two scholars write about is the way that um, uh, the white church and the black church, even when they share Um, a theology, even when they share an eschatology, that there is this fundamental difference between the way that they come to the issue of racism, and that the white church, by and large, sees it as a matter of individual and personal sin, and that the black church sees it as a matter of institutional sin, and it's really hard to create community when you have these notions of sin that are so fundamentally different. So that's that's what I think the church needs to be talking about. Individually, and this is going to sound like real small ball stuff, like really minor league stuff, but I think this is incredibly important because sometimes that's what wins ball games, right? Everybody's always swinging for the fences and and not realizing that there are some other things you ought to be doing. Um, When we think about how to fight racism individually, we tend to think of these huge things like fighting for public policy change by, you know, protesting and 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 i'm all for that i mean i think we need to be in the streets and we need to be doing that and we need to be going to demonstrations and white folks in particular i think need to be showing up for black and brown lives and and putting ourselves on the line in those demonstrations i also realize that most people are not dispositionally inclined to go to protest and by the way that was true even in the 60s at the height of the protest movement hmm. we have this absurd history historical memory, which makes us think everybody was in the streets in 63. Well, they weren't. The March on Washington was 225,000 people. That's a lot of people that didn't go, y'all. I mean, that's a lot of people that did not go. And so most people were never in the streets because most people, either because they're introverted or they're scared or whatever it is, they're not going to go out and protest. But that doesn't mean they don't have something to do. So what's that thing? I think part of it is if you really want to stay in the fight for the long haul, which is if you don't do that, then you'll never come up with the solutions that might take you five years to find or 20 years to find. Is we have to start with ourselves and build these concentric circles outward. And what I mean by that is we have to start by reimagining our story as white people. And I mean that on a quite literal level. Like part of the reason white supremacy stays in place, it's not because the facts are on the side of white supremacy. It's not just because the guns have been on the side of white supremacy, although that helped. It is that the storytelling and the narrative has been in the hands of white supremacy. And if the narrative that we tell about our country and about ourselves reinforces white supremacy, then we can't be surprised when that's what we get. And here's what I mean. What's the story we tell about our country? Well, that America was founded by and settled by these people who were looking for freedom and they were breaking away from the British crown and coming so they could exercise religious liberty and have freedom of all this. And if you believe that, right, then, which is, by the way, just not true. I mean, it's just fundamentally not true. They were the losers of Europe. And I mean that in all love and respect. We were the losers of Europe. The winners don't- Or we don't, would have stayed. The winners don't get on the boat. That's the point. Right. The winners don't leave. The winners are winning. Why would the winners leave? The winners have no reason to get on the boat and take a chance. They, they're doing fine. That's why they're winning, right? The, People that were on the Mayflower, don't be bragging about that. You know who wasn't on the Mayflower? The King. That's who wasn't on the Mayflower. Nobody the King really wanted to keep around was on that ship or any of the ships that came. So so we ought not be so haughty about that. We need to realize we came for land, we came for stuff which is no different than what immigrants today come from, but we tell ourselves this story, and then that allows us not to see them in us, and us in them, and to make these moral distinctions about Mexicans and Hondurans and Guatemalans and Sri Lankans and people from the African continent because we think they're coming to take advantage, but we had noble motives. So number one, we gotta reimagine our story because it's not helping create justice, but also our personal story. The thing that is so dangerous and so insipid about white supremacy in this country is that unlike any other country where it has existed previously in some form, we've really perfected it with an ideology of not only whiteness as superior, but we also blend that with the ideology of meritocracy and rugged individualism, right? So if you think about what is the secular gospel of this country? What is Genesis 1-1 of the Bible of Americanism? Genesis 1-1 of the Bible of Americanism is you can be anything if you just work hard enough, and if you didn't make it, it's your own fault, you should have worked harder. That's essentially the creation story, right, uh, that we tell. Well, if I believe that, about myself, forget the society, if I believe that about me and I am encouraged, am I not to believe that? Like if I've made it, if I've been sort of successful, I'm encouraged to really sort of feel good about myself and when someone else hasn't to sort of judge them for their lack of effort, their bad values, their cultural depravity, their bad choices, their irresponsibility, if I come to believe it and it is so intoxicating, it is so alluring because it, it, it A, it lets me off the hook for other people's problems. And it builds me up, man. So psychologically, this is the perfect circle to keep white supremacy in place, class, inequality, sexism, all of the isms, all of the inequalities become rational because I can look around and I can go, well, these black folks are down here and these white folks are mostly up here. It must be because we're better. I can see men here and women here. Well, it must be because women don't want to work as hard. I see rich people here. I justify their wealth. I see poor people of whatever color here. I justify their, 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 their lack of. And so we've got to reimagine our own stories, start telling the truth, what I would call radical humility. The idea that we got to start being honest with ourselves, taking inventory of our lives. I always tell addicts, right? To the fourth step, I think, in the 12, I, I'm not in a 12 step, but I think it's step four, is uh, taking a radical moral inventory of yourself. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to use the addiction model completely for white supremacy because it's overused, but there's some commonalities. We are somewhat addicted to the notion of, of white supremacy and, we're, and this narrative. And I feel like a radical moral inventory means that we got to be honest about how we got from the womb to where we are today and all the steps that took place that weren't about us, that weren't about hard work, that weren't about effort. Not to say we didn't work hard. Not to say we didn't put forth effort. My great-grandfather, who came here from Russia in the early 1900s, worked 18 hours a day, typical hard-working Jewish immigrant. I get it. What I also get is that he was able to come at a time when non-Europeans were not, by and large, able to, and he was able to get jobs off the boat in New York City that black folks had been taken out of for 30 years by the time he stepped on the shore. So it can be both at once. I want us to acknowledge the help that we've had both because of whiteness, because of maybe class privilege that we were born into, maybe because we're men, maybe because we're straight, maybe because folks are Christian in a Christian dominated society, maybe because you're able-bodied, or maybe just because you had some luck, because we've all had those people, have we not, who came into our lives, and this goes for successful people of color as well, they know it, though, that's the difference. Successful black and brown folks are real clear on the people that came into their lives that made a difference, and we want to own it for ourselves, but black and brown folks are like, no, I had a mentor who did this, I had somebody in third grade that believed in me when nobody else did. I, we need to be that radically uh, humble. And if we do that, the beauty of getting clear on that, I was told to do that in the, in the early 90s when I started doing this work by folks in New Orleans at the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. They wanted to know why I cared so much and I gave them some appropriately political, radical answer, you know, right out of a book. I think I, I, think I told them, well, you know, an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, that one's taken. Go back to the drawing board and try again. And so I had to sit down and I had to think about it. And I did 15 pages of stuff. Going all the way back to my childhood, earliest memories where race had been implicated in everything and then where luck had been implicated, just just dumb luck, just stuff that, you know, serendipity. And, And at first it was frightening because you realize, number one, I don't control my own narrative. That's upsetting. Number two, if I had good luck, that means I could have bad luck. Nobody wants to admit good luck because then things could go south and get bad, but we have to own that because if we do it, not only does humility is a good look on us, that's number one, but more importantly, if I have that radical humility, it makes it virtually impossible to look down on someone else because I really understand that but for a number of things, I could be them, they could be me. If we start telling that story to our families, to our colleagues, every time someone brings up, well, if they would just do this, da-da-da-da-da, that's when we can say, well, actually, all those bad choices that you're saying they make, I've done a lot of that. I've made some of those, I tell stories all the time and I, you know, I, I wait till the statute of limitations has expired, but I tell stories all the time in my books and in my speeches about criminal things that I've done. Mm-hmm. You know, and I actually, and most of it was drug related stuff when I was younger and some of it was other stuff, nothing violent, right? But, but stuff that, i I mean, I tallied it up. And at one point I realized that if I'd been arrested for all of these things, the combined amount of years in prison that I could have done the things that I had done and gotten away with precisely because I wasn't suspected of doing them and therefore I wasn't caught, uh, was like a good 35 or 40 years in prison that I could have done. Now, uh, when I, when I own that, 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 you know, that doesn't mean like, oh, I'm gonna flog myself, and, but it just means like I wanna be honest about why I'm here and how I'm here. And once I do that, how can I then, when I see somebody being marched off to jail on the nightly news, how can I sit there and go, Psh, well, of course. Well, Tim, we,
0: we have to wrap up this portion of our conversation. And, uh, we'll Sorry, have I speak some, a lot. <laughs> uh, it's okay. They, they, we'll, we'll have some conversation with the audience in just a moment. But for the sake of good God, let me say thank you for you what have. you've offered. It does seem to me that when you talk about radical humility, we have within our our church tradition yeah. and our religious traditions generally, the resources for mm-hmm. us to recognize that mm-hmm. this is not about deserve, yeah. uh, this is about grace right. and about uh, being honest with ourselves, uh, and, and if we do so, we could forge a new way of understanding ourselves and our, our yeah. communities. Thank you for the conversation. You bet. Thank Appreciate you. you being on Good Thank God. Thank
1: you, you bet. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks.
0: Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Guest coordination and social media by Upward Strategy Group. Good God Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2018 by Faith Commons.